Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Friends, uh, the focus of this interview, which was recorded on August 4th, 2021, is on eliminating the racial disparities and inequities in the healthcare profession and in healthcare delivery in our country. I urge you, urge you to listen to this interview in its entirety, because if you don't, if you don't, you're going to be missing something special. It is an epic dialogue because our guest and what she represents and stands for and is doing is epic. Ms. Micheline Davis has dedicated her career to exposing the issues of healthcare disparities and inequities, speaking out about these issues, engaging and organizing others around these issues. And again, most importantly, she has committed her career and her life to actually taking action. In a moment, I'm going to formally introduce Micheline Davis. But before I do, I just want to say again, this was one of the most inspiring and emotionally stirring interviews I've conducted over the past four years on this podcast. Micheline's intense eloquence, her honesty, her authenticity, her vulnerability, and her resilience will ring in my ears and resonate in my soul for years to come. Now, in this interview, we're going to learn a lot about the National Medical Fellowship, which Ms. Davis now leads and the amazing work they do. But there are also life lessons that I glean from listening to Micheline. For me, her message is about standing up boldly and unapologetically in the face of injustice and bias, no matter what form it takes, and and our obligation to name it and eliminate it. Her being is one of conviction and commitment. In my 30 years as a healthcare professional, I have heard countless, countless mission and purpose statements but I've never, never heard anything as authentic, as truthful, as courageous, as replete with integrity as Micheline's statement. I would encourage you again to listen to this entire interview. It gets better the further and further we get along. And with that, let me introduce you to her more formally. Uh, Micheline Davis is the new president and chief executive officer of National Medical Fellowships, Inc. Founded in 1946, NMF was one of America's first diversity organizations. Today, it remains the only, the only private national organization solely dedicated to providing scholarships to medical and health profession students in all groups underrepresented in healthcare. Prior to her current role, Ms. Davis was at the Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health, the largest academic medical center in New Jersey, where she served as executive vice president and chief corporate affairs officer. Before joining RWJ Barnabas Health, Ms. Davis served as chief policy counsel to the former New Jersey governor, John Corzine, where she was the first, first African-America to serve in this position in its state's history. She was also the first African-American and only the second woman to serve as acting New Jersey State Treasurer, responsible for a budget of over $30 billion. She began her legal career as a trial litigator. She's an honors graduate of Seton Hall University and holds a Juris Doctorate from the Seton Hall School of Law. Named among the top 25 most influential minority leaders in healthcare 
by Modern Healthcare Magazine, Ms. Shalene is nationally recognized for her public health track record of health equity policy successes. So without further ado, let's drop into the interview, which we recorded August 4th of 2021, just uh, about uh, three weeks ago. Micheline, so great to have you back on the podcast. It's been a while since we spoke. And uh, again, just want to thank you for being here. How are you doing today? I am well, my friend, and really delighted to be back together with you on this platform. Thank you. Well, I, I am so excited for you. And, you know, we had a chance to talk uh, a week or two ago and just catch up. And I was just really blown away by what you're doing and the inflection in your career. And, you know, before we get into all the background, I just thought it might be helpful for you to share with uh, our listeners what the National Medical Foundation is. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, before you shared it with me a, a few weeks ago, I, I had not heard of it. And I suspect that's true for people across the country. So could you just dive into a little bit of its history and how many people has it served and what it does and, and the alum? I was just, again, the numbers are, are startling. Oh, thank you, my friend. And, and of course, thank you for the, the, the question. Yes, I, I, I often say that NMF has been a hidden figure, but it is time for us to be a hidden figure no more. Um, the National Medical Fellowships has actually been in existence for 75 years. We were founded in 1946. And actually, we are one of this nation's first diversity organizations. It was originally founded in order to ensure that there were opportunities provided to uh, African Americans in medical school in order to finish that trajectory, in order to ensure that there was more diversity in medicine. We now of course, cover African Americans, but all of those of the African diaspora, including Latino, certain Asian, uh, and other members of the demographic. But, you know, we have, over the last 75 years, propelled forth diversity in medicine because of the fact that we have provided over $40 million to uh, over 32,000 alumni. And one of the things that has become completely, profoundly uh, a poignancy to me has been in my dialogue with uh, deans of medical schools, just how important they realize National Medical Fellowships has been in ensuring that they had representative diversity in their uh, every medical school incoming class. And um, quite frankly, we were uh, instrumental in ensuring that individuals were able to finance their medical school careers in order to to make it through matriculation and and in order to return to, to serve uh, the communities that they do today. And so, Micheline, these are the students that you're funding and providing educational support to. Funding support is this medical students. What kinds of trainees are these? Yeah, so they are, in fact, uh, medical students. Some of our programs also include those who are fellows, et cetera. Some are, are for currently existing positions, but primarily our targeted population is really on Black, Indigenous, persons of color, underrepresented in medicine. Um, and so there are those who are oftentimes first-generation immigrant family, immigrant descendant, et cetera, who really, as a result of the historical and structural inequities of this particular country and perhaps their own, that literally have family incomes of uh, approximately $45,000, um, you know, as you know, as, as a practicing physician, um, you know, that the average cost of, of medical education tends to be approximately right over $66,000. And so the family household income is 45. Um, one of the things that we are seeing is the fact that many of our scholars actually 
graduate with upwards of, of $300,000 in debt, right? And so um, what we're seeing is the proliferation of the wealth gap. And so, you know, it's really poignantly important that we make certain that we focus our time and attention on ensuring that these individuals are able to make it through medical school without the burden of wondering how in the world they're going to afford this and how much debt they're going to be in as they as they leave it so that they do in fact come back to the to the communities that they have um, come from which have been uh, oftentimes historically disenfranchised um, and quite frankly uh, made vulnerable as a result of the the systemic and structural inequity that we've just spoken about yeah, and, we, and I want to dive into the, as you articulate, the systemic and structural inequities and right now, because I suspect that people are thinking, wondering, this is great, but, you know, why just people of color receiving this? And, you know, it, it's a question, I always hesitate to ask a question that I, I actually have an answer for myself, but I'm, I'm going to actually jump into this because I do think it's important. And then I actually want to get into some some of the stories of these students and, and their, their actual circumstances, which are startling, and some of the alum that you've actually funded, which is incredible. The question is, you know, why focus on a segment, black students and students of color, Latinx, et cetera. And here's one reason why. And I learned this actually from speaking to Harris Rosen and uh, some of the research that has been done in this regard. So there are trillions of dollars of student debt in this country. And the fact is, the majority of it is disproportionately on students of color and disproportionately on black students. And to your point, once you start to look at these numbers, and by the way, if anyone out there wants to to get these numbers and ask me about them, I am happy to forward uh, these stats and these, and these studies. The fact is what we have here is a cycle, a perpetual cycle of uh, disparity and inequity in our education system. The black community, the Latinx community, people of color cannot dig out from underneath this burden of debt. Um, and it is being perpetuated. And it is organizations like uh, the National Medical Fellowship and others that are, are trying to essentially break this cycle. You know, the question I wanted to put it out there, that's my small response to it, given the little I know about this. Um, but I'm, I'm curious as to how would you respond to that question of, of why this focus? Oh, thank you so much. Well, one of the reasons why this focus is so all important is because of um, some of the, the evidence-based studies that we've had that have been released most recently. You know, everyone is is now talking about health equity. Great. Welcome to the party um, for those of us who have been in this field for so long. But the additional element there is, you know, we actually have evidence-based and evidence-informed studies that reveal the fact that if, in fact, you want to address issues of, of um, for instance, Black infant mortality or uh, Black maternal mortality and the the uh, disparity actually in those rates. Um, we already have evidence that reveals the fact that black babies live longer when they have black doctors. So it's interesting to me that individuals sit there and, and may issue statements and want to heard courageous conversations, but yet we have this, this one proven fact. If in fact you want to stop healthcare disparities, not just reduce them, but to actually aim to eliminate them, right? We have a proven fact as to how to do so. And at present, Black men in medicine, for example, only only comprise you know three point one um, percent of, of physicians. And what we know is that the the number of physicians, right, actually, absolutely, of black men in medicine uh, and in medical school has actually decreased between nineteen seventy eight and two thousand and fourteen. Right, we know this. We know this because AAMC has kept track of this. Right, and and um, as a result of that, you know, we we also know that there are are 
um, it's interesting because we have seen the fact that that the um, shift has happened where we now have more women, right, in entering medical school than even men, that that's actually um, uh, around 50 percent of a balance. But what we haven't seen is how that actually trickles into other factors and other demographics. And so these are the demographics that continually come out as the lowest on our healthcare outcomes, right, as having the worst healthcare outcomes. Now, we know that we are more than just three percent of the population. So if, in fact, we want to get to this issue and get to this aim, it just would make sense that we would actually, rather than than merely issue a statement, which is a great first step, it would be to invest in what we know is an actual cure, an actual element of trying to undress the systemic and structural inequities that have literally led us to where we are right now, where we have all of these uh, um, uh, poor health outcomes. And one of those ways is literally to have communities be treated by individuals who have high cultural competence, who oftentimes come from where they have come from, lived where they have lived, literally speak their language, and, and actually understand the fact that they are not in a situation by their own doing, but rather, right, that they are in situations through a system that was designed in order to proliferate the permanence of an underclass, right? Because it's so interesting to me. I love uh, what you said, uh, my friend, because really, um, as I as I look at this and I talk to this, it's still interesting to me how many of us in healthcare still utilize language that kind of blames the victim. Uh, you know, how, how often we still think that that these poor health outcomes really just come as a result of the social determinants of health. And one of the reasons why I've always called them the political determinants of health is because of the fact that they have been um, <laughs> structurally and systemically laid by those who design the policies and the systems and the structures through which other community members must exist, right? And so it is impossible. People talk about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, here's the rub. I have been made to build your boots and your bootstraps. So I'm not certain how, right, how it is that now I'm supposed to pull myself up by my own when actually you have made it systemically impossible for me to tend to even structuring the soles of my boots. I think the points you're making are are fundamentally so important to understand the reality of the situation, which is that, to put it, you know, very, very simply in in my way of thinking, the playing field is not level. It's not even close to level. And so to your point, to say, just go play the game, the game is, is rigged. And, you know, I think the, the statistics and the facts, and, we, you, you know, we could go on for hours actually citing all the studies that, that support that, both in terms of healthcare, in terms of the access to healthcare, the actual treatment. And I think, I think this is an important point to support what you were saying before, which is that we know now for a fact, and the last year because of COVID, a lot of this has, you know, there's been a light shown on the disparities in both the treatment, the difference in treatment, if you're, you know, black versus white uh, is startling. And the difference in outcomes of care is startling. Um, And COVID was just one, another example of many that revealed that those are facts. I mean, if anyone, again, wants to have that conversation, that's a conversation that's been had and and is clear. And I want to just emphasize your argument or your point, which is this. We talk about reducing the disparities in care delivery, right? And again, so many examples uh, of the sort of, as you point out, the systemic and institutional racism that is inherent across the board. It's obviously inherent in education, in politics and law, but in healthcare, um, which is the reason why there is this, or is a large part of the reason why there is this disparity in, in health outcomes. 
And we saw this again in COVID where disproportionately uh, black Americans were dying from COVID uh, out of uh, way out of proportion, uh, hospitalized in ICUs and dying from COVID way out of proportion to their percentage in the local populations. And to your point, everyone was pointing fingers. I think uh, it was clearly misguided and misinformed and just factually incorrect, but pointing fingers at, well, these are people who are just not sicker or not taking care of themselves. Absolutely ridiculous argument. Um, because the, the truth is, it, it was a function of the disparity in, in health care previously and during the pandemic. But I think your argument, I just want to underscore this to make sure it's clear to me. You're saying, listen, if everyone's saying across the country, and this is healthcare leaders and, and politicians and policy folks, everyone's saying we have to eliminate the, the disparities and inequities in care in healthcare. You're saying, listen, the straightest line to do that is not to talk about it not to publish about it, but to actually put physicians and nurses and other healthcare providers of color in place because, because they actually, that what it's demonstrated is that if you have this sort of racial concordance of provider and patient, the outcomes immediately change and they're much better. And I just want, I just want to make sure I understand that as being your argument and, and what undergirds the importance of the National Medical Fellowship. Thank you for that. Um, you know, you, you, you say that so incredibly well. Um, I want to add to that. Not only is it something that that I stand on um, solidly, but it's also not even just uh, just about ensuring that we have um, uh, diversity in physician representation. I'm also talking about diversity in physician leadership, right? One of the things that I, I have realized, right, you know that I come from a large academic medical center system where I, I served as uh, a senior member of the senior most executive team, one of the things that I realized is that unless we literally have individuals of representation who have had these lived experiences, which is really important as well, in positions of leadership, then what happens is, right, uh, after um, entities may issue statements and hold courageous conversations, what happens is that natural strategic tension begins to arise in an institution. That strategic tension that begins to say, well, wait a minute, right? If in fact we, we insist on becoming this anti-racist institution, then that also means that there's something that needs to change about the status quo. And if in fact that change in that status quo means that I have less power, then there is an inherent resistance that rises up in order to keep the status quo the status quo, right? When folks begin to realize that all of this is actually about power and decision making and power, right, in, in resource allocation and power in, in budget allocation, you know, it, then, then things start to kind of adhere to the way in which they've always been. And my friends, if we continue to do what we've always done exactly the way we've always done it, we will continue to get what we have always gotten, which has been, right, heightened healthcare disparities. And so one of the things that I'm saying is exactly what you, what you um, tout so so effortlessly, but it is also ensuring that this next generation of, of physicians are also in position as physician leaders. It's fantastic to have them on the floor. It's fantastic to have them in your grand rounds, but they really need to be heading the department. They need to be making every administrative, operational, and clinical decision that is going to impact, and, and in fact, those who are from vulnerable populations and everyone else. I firmly believe in the Angela Glover Blackwell methodology that indicates in her curb cut effect paper um, that literally when you benefit the elite, you only benefit the elite. But when you benefit the most vulnerable, when you address the most vulnerable, 
everyone else benefits, right? So, so it's really keenly important that, that we have those who understand the importance of focusing in on that population and doing so in a matter that doesn't blame the victim, right? Understanding that race is not the predictor of, of poor healthcare outcomes, racism is, right? And how they, they really wish to, to deal with that in a real and dynamic way is one that's done not just in the operating room, but in the boardroom and in the meeting room too. The number you mentioned before, and I think this is important when you said the statistic that uh, somewhere around 3% of doctors are black men in this country. And I wonder if you know what the female physicians, black physicians, what percents they are. But, you know, it sounds to me we're talking that less than way less than 10% of physicians in this country are, are black. And the point is that the percentage of the population that is in fact black is much larger, 30, 40%, larger in some instances. And the percent of actual patient populations within healthcare systems is also significantly larger. So what you're pointing out is there is a gap between the percentage of patients who are of color and the percentage of doctors treating them. And again, your point is, if you really are interested in reducing the disparities of care, the research shows that creating more doctors, having doctors of color uh, where there is this racial concordance immediately eliminates, greatly reduces and eliminates this, the disparities in, in care delivery and an outcome. And you're also saying that what we need also is not just the providers, but also the provider leaders uh, who are really setting the strategic and tactical course here. So again, for me, I hadn't realized this, but the National Medical Fellowship really is the straightest line to uh, this country reducing uh, the disparities in healthcare delivery and healthcare outcomes uh, by uh, creating funding more students uh, so that they can go into medical school and other healthcare training programs and actually be practicing and actually be leading healthcare. I just think that line of thinking, it, it, to be honest with you, Micheline, I hadn't really connected all these dots until this conversation right now, even though we had spoken and written before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will tell you, so, so the percentage of, of Black women physicians is actually less than the percentage of Black male physicians. Um, the total percentage of of black men and women's physicians together is actually only 5%, right? So if we know that black men are 3.1, then we know what the remainder is. Um, and that is that is actually black women. Um, and so what I will tell you, my friend, is um, not only is that exactly, exactly true, but remember, it, National Medical Fellowships is also the only private organization in the country that is actually dedicated to this as its sole mission. Right. So so not only is it, you know, we are the most immediate route. We are the straightest line. We are for those who understand, listen, yes, we need to do something for future generations. And so we need to do, go way upstream and do policy change, which, you know, is my background. But also for those who understand we have an urgency of now. We are in a situation where, you know, um, the pandemic is not over. Right. We, we And we have seen a decimation of vulnerable communities. But it's also really important that folks understand what COVID has done to um, uh, our, our numbers of represent, representation as well. So of the 3,600 healthcare workers who we lost to COVID at the height of the pandemic, at the conclusion of 2020, the majority of which were black and brown. We have literally been set back an entire generation, an entire generation of black and brown clinicians as a result of COVID. So the urgency of now is so incredibly unique 
because of the fact that we are about to see pandemic number two, right? We're talking about the Delta variant, the Delta plus, the Lambda, you know, the, the communities that have been made vulnerable as a result of historical disenfranchisement and policy ramifications, my friends, they are still vulnerable and we shall continue to be. And so as we are going through this pace, literally the reason why I said, I literally was sitting uh, in, in my office and just said, I'm, you know, I've got to go do more. And that is what brought me to National Medical Fellowships. They are the only organization in this country that is solely dedicated to this purpose. And I literally had to feel like I was a part of something that has been picking up the needle and pushing it forward. Listen, uphill, up a slippery slope, carrying a boulder in the hot sun for the last 75 years. I want to put a, what we call a key performance indicator out there, where we are to where we need to be. And then I want to dive into this, this point you just raised about, you know, it being the only organization that is trying to connect this direct line to actually uh, decreasing the disparities and eliminating the disparities in healthcare through funding students. The line is this, or the, the, the key performance metric, the goal is this, if we're at 5%, of all doctors that are are black Americans then, and we know that the black population is somewhere in the, what is it, 30, 40%. The goal here in my mind, and I don't know if this is, you know, a goal implicit or explicit for NMF, but but the goal is to actually increase the percentage of uh, black physicians from the 5% it currently is to somewhere 35 to 40%. Is that something you all discuss or, or what is the number? Am I off on that? Oh, no, listen, my friend, you, you are not off. What I will tell you is the fact that, and, and again, right, we, we, while we were founded in order to really address the, the dearth of African-Americans in medicine, we are also ensuring the proliferation of future Latinx members of, of our community as well, right? Because, because their numbers are not nearly where they need to be either. And so as we look at, as we look at that, actually the, the percentage of uh, those who identify Black in America is, is at 13%. Um, but, but what you describe actually is a number that is more akin to being, to ensuring that we are not only treating those who are representative of, the, of those communities, but also treating those who are similarly situated as those communities, right? So that lived experience of having vulnerable background. Um, uh, and I will quote with Thurgood Marshall said about him being on the bench, right? It, when a reporter asked him, you know, what was 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 your service on the Supreme Court a good thing for um, African Americans? His answer was, "My service on the Supreme Court was a good thing for all Americans." So having having closer to that thirty to forty percent is actually something that is better for all Americans. To be completely candid, right? So as we look at that, you know, we know that only five point eight percent of doctors are Hispanic. Um, or Latino, right? And we, we compare that with the fact that they're 18% of the overall U.S. population, right? Only 2.4% of active phys physicians are even uh, Latino women. So as we're looking at this, we are really trying to ensure that those who are underrepresented in medicine have ample access and opportunity to be treated by physicians who are in and of their communities, who have shared their, their lived experience, right, who are sensitized to not just their individual experiences of racism, but sensitized to how systemic and structural racism shows up in medicine, just as it shows up in the world. Doctors who understand and would ask you, right, 
how many, like how you're doing in reference to your mental health after an issue of police brutality has occurred. Understanding the, 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 the study that came out from, from the University of Pennsylvania in 2018, which evidenced that individuals of color have a, have report bad mental health days for upwards of three months after an incident of police brutality, no matter where they reside in proximity to the occurrence. Right, understanding how this impacts your mental health and how your mental health impacts your, your stress levels and, and, and your blood pressure and your hypertension. So doctors who understand the wholeness of being a person underrepresented in this country. Yeah, no, I, I, what you just mentioned is so true, so real, so substantiated. And, you know, something else that substantiates and validates what, you, you know, the effort that the National Medical Fellowship is, is moving towards this increase in the number of providers, uh, physicians of, of color is really, really critical is here, here's another sort of category of healthcare startups that is uh, over the past couple of years I've seen sprouting. And this is beginning to see uh, startups that are providing care specifically for Latinx or black uh, Americans for black patients and Latinx patients. And what their primary fundamental thesis is that it is different, that there are there are differences in the way, for instance, in mental health issues. Um, and there's a company on blank and saying that literally is focused on uh, providing mental health, behavioral health for black Americans, because it is different. The physician that actually has created that curriculum and that is writing the, the scientific papers is out of Johns Hopkins. So this is credible research. And again, we're seeing the same thing. There's a, a few others I've seen pop up in treating diabetes and hypertension saying, listen, you know, we have to treat, we have to understand that, that the, the context of care is, is different uh, for subsegments of the population. You cannot impose what is quite honestly a generic white medical model and system of care onto subsegments of the population because it does not apply and you're not recognizing some of the, the actual realities of the situations they're dealing with, whether it's physical health or mental health. And, and we're seeing this new category. I mean, it's just, it's, it's great, it's awesome, this new category. And so again, it, it once again, uh, really I think supports the effort you're doing. And, and, and I think the numbers, and I was off, and I apologize for that in terms of the percentage, but whatever it is, we have to go from 5% to, to 13% or 18%. And again, that translates. What I like about that, from an operational perspective, is you could literally say, "Here are the the increase. This, this is the increase in the in the number of Black and Latinx uh, physicians we need in this country. There's an actual number we can shoot for, and we are far off that mark. And that's what you're about is is trying to help with that. One of the challenges in in our previous correspondence that you indicated to me is that as you're going to speak to, obviously, your organization is. I assume you're looking for for funding. Um, from healthcare systems and, and other uh, corporations. And, and maybe you could say a little bit more about that in, in a moment. But one of the challenges I've heard you talk about is that uh, many philanthropic entities actually prohibit funding for scholarships, which is you know what, what the National Medical Fellowship is all about to achieve its vision and mission. Um, so to me, and again, this, these are my words and my impression, it seems to me this is just another manifestation of many of the implicit systemic and structural racism in our country and in healthcare, in our society. What do you say to those philanthropic uh, entities that are, you know, are saying, uh, professing they have a commitment to equity, but resist the corporate or philanthropic support uh, of scholarship dollars for the National Medical Fellowship? 
Yeah, uh, I find that really, really very interesting, quite frankly, my friend. And it is evidence of, uh, quite frankly, uh, supremacy in organizational culture. I, I want to call it something else, but it's, a, it's, it's really evidence of a misunderstanding uh, or a lack of understanding of what it is that connects us to a commitment to equity, right? So when we have lots of organizations talking about their commitment to equity who are still keeping that bar in place. And as I look at it, I literally have to point them towards a historical wealth gap and have to evidence, you, you have to trust that we still know what is best for our communities. And as a result of that, one of the, one of the triumphant issues remains the, the lack of financial resources for our student scholars to be able to make it through medical school. So by, by um, adhering to that bar, they are actually being adherent to inequity Although, right, their, their purpose and their mission statement, right, their vision, their strategic framework all point to the fact that this is what we want. It's the same thing when we take a look at how so many uh, organizations, um, philanthropic, corporate, and other, literally bar uh, administrative costs, right? Because they're just like, well, our, our dollars are only to go to programming. Well, here's the rub, right? Um, just as we are done dying, right? You have to pay people to, in order to do this so that the quality of the work actually comes out to be that which creates the change that our communities need to see. So I really need for folks to, to, to begin to, what, what I often have said, review whether or not their policies have been set through a lens of privilege. And if in fact they have, realize that that privilege is something that while they can afford it, right, the others cannot. It's not just that the policies have been set through the lens of privilege. I would suggest, given all the reading I've done, and again, I relied heavily on, on Professor Kendi's work, but I would say that they've relied on and been constructed through the lens of racism. Uh, and again, this is not pointing fingers at individuals, organizations by any means. This is so insidious. But having said that, once you start to open up that door and start to talk about it, it's no longer insidious. It's now out there and open. So the question is, and I, I love this, I was actually thinking about this earlier this morning, there is no gray. We're always thinking like, you know, kind of I'm, I'm on the fence and I'm in the gray zone. There is no gray here. You, you either are, and I learned this from Kenny, but I've, I've now actually seen this in, from other scholars as well. It's, it's an interesting sort of meme in some of the reading I've been doing, which is you're either for something or you're not for it. You're against it, right? You're, you're either in or you're out. And so this notion of I'm not anti-racist, but I'm not racist, that doesn't fly. You're, you're either perpetuating a insidiously, you know, implicitly racist culture, which again, hard to argue against at this point in time, given what we know, you're either perpetuating it or you're doing something to stop that. And I think what you're saying is, listen to all the philanthropic uh, organizations, if you believe in what we're talking about, if you believe in breaking the cycle of inequity and disparities in healthcare through supporting uh, more and more black and Latinx physicians, then you have to start to support these scholarships and fund these scholarships and not just fund programmatic. And doing otherwise is perpetuating, to your point, not just a privilege, but to my point, a racist culture and society and legacy. And so I'm just going to put it out there. I am open to that conversation with anyone who wants to reach out to me and, and have that conversation. But I, I really believe that's the case here. And I just want to say it as plainly as I can. I'm grateful for you, my friend. And I, I will say to your earlier point around the way in which, quite frankly, so much of the research really needs to be 
customized and catered to particular populations. It's the reason why we have partnered with entities like Johnson and Johnson um, and Merck and um, now Bristol Myers Squibb Foundation in order to really increase diversity in clinical trials. Um, so these are the, the the types of of access to opportunities that only National Medical Fellowship provides to physicians uh, underrepresented in medicine um, so that we are literally increasing the number of physician scientists who become researchers and investigators and really try to center the voice of these communities and clinical trials. Um, we are the only one that, that have partnered in ways in, in order to do this. And we are the only ones who are literally picking up this needle and pushing it forward. I'm delighted to be with you on this journey. Thank you. Oh my God, I'm, it's such a privilege to speak with you, Micheline. And I want to shift gears a little bit and go back to specifics about the National Medical Fellowship. You shared with me some startling stories. And again, I went through medical school. Uh, I did take out a lot of loans. I spent a lot of years uh, moonlighting to pay back those loans. But having said that, you shared with me some stories of the experience of some of these students um, and the hardships uh, that you've seen and heard. And I, I wonder if you could just share a story or two about that. And I'm curious, again, how many students you're currently funding and, you know, do you have a, a goal of, of reaching a certain number? So just a little bit uh, more deeper dive. And, and by the way, how do these candidates come to you, these these students, and how do you select them? So maybe maybe just a, a little bit of focus on the process of and the stories of the National Medical Fellowship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we partner with medical schools in order to ensure that the deans of the medical schools and the financial service entities and offices therein uh, understand who we are and what it is that we offer. And as a result of that, when we have a, um, uh, an opening of applications for scholarships, you know, we push out that information so that they might advertise it to their populations as well, particularly the, the um, historically Black uh, medical schools are those that that tend to send us a high number of students, but our students come from everywhere. Um, and so as a result of that, you know, it's it's interesting to see the fact that there are medical schools which do not right really advertise our offerings to students. But if, in fact, there are any medical schools that want to have a more diverse population, um, then a partnership with us is just a requisite. Uh, as a result of that, once that process is open, they, they have the opportunity to apply and our internal programmatic team, as well as some members of our incredible board of directors often have the opportunity to, to support us um, on an evaluation team and select students who are um, within the, the criteria for eligibility. Again, those um, who are underrepresented in medicine, um, who have a demonstrated commitment to community, to helping vulnerable populations, to ensuring that healthcare disparities, which do not naturally appear in nature, are actually uh, eliminated, not just reduced, right? So we, we look for those who understand what it's going to take in order to address this. And quite frankly, I don't want to say whose fault it really is, but the fact that these issues exist in society, and that is not because anyone ever wakes up and decides, oh, I want to be, have high hypertension for breakfast. Um, and so uh, they go through that process. Uh, and then our scholars participate in programs, one of which uh, our PCLP program is something that that just commenced after a 10-year run. It was in partnership with GE. It was about our primary care 
leadership program is just really um, uh, fantastic to the scholars who, who come out of, of that particular um, realm. But again, we have 32,000 alumni, 18,000 are extremely active in our regional alumni efforts. There's a reason why these individuals are remaining connected. It is not just about the, the amount of money that we give. It is also about the community that they become a part of and the community that serves to support them as a result of their um, membership. And so, you know, I think that that is almost what we, what we do more of, right? I think that, that that is what individuals are craving. I recently spoke to our scholars uh, about the importance of social justice leadership in healthcare and began to really mentor them through a series of, of, of instances that they have encountered. Yale recently produced a study that evidenced the, this, the weathering of the burden of racism for our medical students. And my friend, if we just think for a minute, we are all dealing with being in the midst of a global pandemic and an international uh, reckoning on racial justice. But these students are weathering both of those things and the daily microaggressions of being in, a, in an environment which A, was not designed for them, B, was often intentionally designed in order to bar them, and C, they still feel like it's unwelcoming. They have all of this, as well as incidents of George Floyd and Mike Brown, and right over every single day. Do you know what it is like to consistently watch yourself, the image of yourself brutalized on TV and all over social media, and then have to show up and perform on a world stage as if the historical marginalization and attack has not impacted you at all? So these are the types of things that National Medical Fellowships brings as a unique option for these students. Every uh, medical uh, uh, school dean and faculty member should want their students to have this network because truthfully having that communal support helps to, to really support them in, in their matriculation through medical school and out into the profession, right? So this is the kind of, of, of unique opportunity that we provide. What you say resonates so much with me in the conversations, many medical centers across the country, ours included, the one I'm in, uh, have been having, uh, at least in the last year or so, conversations and hearing from our colleagues who are black physicians and nurses and PAs uh, and techs for that matter. It, it is just, uh, just, I don't even know how to describe the experience, but just to hear, you know, how different their experience of of being in healthcare is than than a white person's experience, you know, quite honestly, just was not aware of that. And and you pointed out that sort of weathering of all these so-called microaggressions, call them what you will, they are aggressions. And some of them are unintentional or just ignorant, but- None um, of them are micro. I, I have to, no, they're not micro, no. Right, but that is the terminology no. that's utilized for them, and that's the totally terminology of the scholarship. But you are at, you are absolutely uh, accurate. Listen, I, I recall being a, an executive vice president of a, of a large system and having someone come up and touch my hair. Right. So, you know, these are the things that, that don't happen in other spaces, you know, like literally pat me on the head. Um, and I turn to look to them to be like, are, are you insane? When historically, right, patting a black person on the head was was like a, a good luck symbol. Right. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Um, this was a colleague who right, allegedly meant no harm. Right. And so it, it, it is just the understanding of the deepening of that. It, I remember a, a group of um, students sharing with me the way in which they were gathered together and, and study. And uh, their professor happened to come to the back of the class and said, what is this to go? And so I'm just like, but we are expected to never have these things bother us. Right. So you talk about this, the, the, some of the stories of our scholars. 
my friend, we have the scholars who are at the top of their class, who are, you know, um, uh, working feverishly. Uh, we had one student who was living in her car. This, this is a medical student living in our emergency living in her car. scholarship. We have a, a need-based scholarship. Our emergency scholarship enabled her to come out of her car and get into an apartment. This is a medical student living in her car. Listen, and I say that not in a manner to, to diminish her dignity, but in, a, in, a, in an opportunity to praise her outrageous resilience. And she, her grades were incredible. I mean, these are the individuals that you want to be leading your healthcare systems of the future, right? We have the scholars who have overcome what most people only even dream about. Like literally they have weathered the storms that other folks have never even seen, have never even countered. And in the midst of a global pandemic, don't you want someone at the helm of your medical system, at the, in the seat of your chief medical officer, serving in your provider uh, uh, and payer network? Someone who has literally had to weather a storm before. So I say all the time, our alum are really the alum that everyone is looking for. That is who we have. You shared with me that some of your alum are, are in fact, leaders across the country in healthcare, have become leaders. And, and I have to think in, in part because they were supported by you and were able to actually get through the education process. Can you share with us anyone? Or I don't want to impose on anyone's privacy, but... Yeah, I, I absolutely understand that. And listen, I mean, um, from from we, we've had uh, at least two surgeon generals, you know, including Regina Benjamin. We, we, we've had uh, numbers of individuals. Oh, my goodness. Uh, individuals who have who have led at NIH uh, and at CMS um, and the CDC, um, actually. Um, and so, you know, we have we have uh, the, the chairs of neurology and psychiatry and throughout the country. And oftentimes those who have been the first and or the only in their positions. My current uh, board chair is actually also an alum of NMF. She was, she is the former health commissioner of the state of Maryland, right? So Dr. Sandra Nichols, um, who is now at United Health Group, is a unique individual who literally created medical innovation in order to treat vulnerable patient populations everywhere she has ever been. Micheline, it's an incredible story, this National Medical Fellowship, it's, and it's such a hidden story. The only organization of its type to support uh, the funding and education of Black American students and Latinx and people of color, students of color, and as you're pointing out, uh, dealing with some hardships that are unimaginable, living in cars literally uh, while they're in medical school. Um, and then producing uh, not only physicians, but leaders, you say at the federal government level, in uh, prestigious university hospital settings, leading departments, divisions, um, organizations. And you shared some others with me, too, that are just, you know, again, it's incredible that thanks to the, the funding that they received as students, they were able to get through their training and, and really achieve greatness and contribute to our society. As you point out before, uh, Thurgood Marshall's comment that it's not just uh, helping black Americans or people of color. It's helping all Americans. And I think you just came back to that point and, and punctuated it. So, so here's the thing, what, as people are listening here, and I'm thinking even for myself and you, and I've had this conversation, I, and I asked you point blank, what, what can we do to <clears throat> connect you to who you need to be connected to? Is this to hospital systems across the country? Is this to, 
uh, uh, medical schools across the country? Who do you need to speak to? Who has to reach out to you so that they can actually connect with you, become part of their students, can become part of this network? Um, they could potentially contribute to to the National Medical Fellowship so that we actually can right this wrong. What, 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 what do you need? What are you looking for? How can we help you? I appreciate all of that. And I think really, so this, this, I have a clarion call out to every alum of NMF to really return so that we can pay it forward. I have a clarion call out to every corporate entity. If they issued a statement or tried to give off, uh, give someone off for Juneteenth um, to really make certain that that they have an opportunity to show their stakeholders, uh, their employees and their board members and their shareholders that they are really being about what it is they're talking about um, to, to reach out to us, to every medical school dean um, and financial office to, to really reach out to us in order to ensure that they are partnering in a real and deliberate way to drive their own numbers up, not just of recruitment, but of retention and matriculation, and to every hospital and uh, healthcare system and managed care organization to literally ensure that they are welcome to the table to help change the face of medicine for the future, and that we are the only vehicle through which they are actually able to do so most immediately. And so I welcome everyone to, to that table and to be brand ambassadors for those of your listeners, my friend, as you already are, in order to ensure that they spread the word that we exist, that we have been here for 75 years, that we intend on be here for 75 more, but that we will need your partnership in order to create the change that we need to see in this world. Thank you for that. You know, again, I'm, I'm hoping that we can get this dialogue out to people who can hear it and act on it. And uh, for those who are listening, uh, you know, I, I would urge you just as I'm urging myself to make the connections. And in fact, I'll just be quite transparent. I'm, I'm making a connection within my own organization uh, to the folks I think that can work with Micheline and the National Medical uh, Fellowship. Uh, so uh, I'm walking the talk that I'm asking you to do as well and inviting you to do more more to the point. Micheline, one, one last question. And it seems to me you were you have an amazing career starting at the, the sort of senior level uh, at the state you know, government level in New Jersey and a lot of firsts uh, for you uh, that you've created. Uh, and then you were a senior executive at the uh, Robert Johnson, uh, St. Barnabas Robert Johnson uh, healthcare system, the largest healthcare system in New Jersey for many years. And, you know, I've known you for a, a little while and it seems to me just in listening to you, you've gone through some sort of personal, professional inflection, um, which quite honestly, I'm, I'm in awe of. And I, I'm just wondering, you, you, you did diverge. I mean, you were on this uh, corporate path for many, many years, uh, a, a powerful path, a political path. And it seems to me you went in a different direction. Something's different. And I'm just kind of wondering, was there something? Was there a moment? Was there a reflection? Was there something that happened to you that, that sort of brought you where you are today? So I, I love the thoughtful question. Thank you. And I think, my friend, that um, there are two things in particular. One, you are correct. I, I come from a large academic medical center system that at the height of COVID, I watched 30, no less than 30 of my colleagues perish to this uh, virus. And at some point, you know, when you take a look at the impact of that and the impact and, and who perished first, as well as who was most vulnerable in our communities. I just realized that I'm done dying. I, I am done 
watching colleagues and communities suffer and die at the expense, really, of what others would just consider an inconvenience, right? When the rest of the world rolled up in order to shelter at home or, or stay at home um, because they could, who became the essential workers who held our entire society together? And a whole lot of them look just like those who, right, are in these communities who are the most vulnerable, the ones who had to literally make a decision between do I stay home to make certain that my, 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 my children are safe and that I survive, or do I go to work in order to, to shelve produce and deliver packages so that I can feed them? It is the same equation, the same formula that's been utilized historically between do I fill my prescription or do I pay my rent so that my children have shelter? And I just am tired of watching the same community members suffer the same realities when those who are in power are blind to the entire equation. And for me, what shifted was that on this side of COVID, on this side, with whatever amount of time I might have left on this planet, because I believe that with, because of this pandemic, it's likely all shorter for all of us. I needed every second of it to truly matter, to address this one ill, to save even one life, and to change the face of medicine. And as a result of that, I came to NMF. And that is what changed for me. Micheline, thank you for, well, first of all, let me just say that you, you, and I'm not embarrassed to say this, you've, you've brought me to tears. I, I hear the, and for you, I, I, I mean, this is so real and so much of who you are. I mean, I, I obviously hear it, we hear it in your voice and um, I, I don't even know how to say this, but thank you for your integrity. This level of integrity is in my experience quite rare. And when I said before, I'm in awe of it, I, I meant that. I, I wanted to ask you this question because I, I, it's just important. This is, there's something there that there's a bigger message here for all of us. And I think, you know, part of the conversation, having, having conversations with folks like yourself who are, who are really doing something different, something real, taking a risk, um, leaving a tried and true path and, and leaving all the, the things that the, the trappings that come with it, the financial success, the professional success, um, the safety of that and doing things like you're doing. I, I think for all of us, there's a lesson in that. And I, for one, am trying to learn and learn from you. And I, I have been, and I, I just can't even, I mean, thank you is not even close to what I feel. I just want to say, and I said this to you when we were talking uh, on the phone a, a week or two or three ago, t tell me what I can do to help you. And we need your, that integrity, that leadership. Um, we need more of it. And I would say in, in not just in healthcare, but in politics and in law and in our education system, 
um, our social justice system, I mean, across the board. And I think for me, that's the bigger lesson I'm hearing from you. Um, this leadership with integrity, this leadership with courage, this leadership with such direct honesty. I'm going to be thinking about this and listening to what you just said over and over again. And so just, just want to say again, the path you're walking is a leadership path and it's, it's you, right? Um, and I'm sure you feel it. Uh, but again, if there's anything I can do, and I'm inviting others who are listening to support you and, and your colleagues, uh, please, again, let me and let us know. Micheline, any sort of final word? And I'm not sure that you need anything more than what you just shared. Thank you. I, I will say it will take all of us. All of us. And so by all means, I invite your listeners to please reach out. Let us be uniquely disruptive in this space to make some good and necessary trouble. John Lewis's quote. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, another hero like yourself. Uh, Micheline, I'm sort of emotionally spent here. I, I'm, I'm just, again, thinking about the words you just shared and, and more than that, the honesty you shared and um, the integrity. I can't thank you enough. I'm excited to share this. I really have to tell you as, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I, I can't wait to share this with others and hopefully uh, have others respond to it and actually take action. So thank you. And, and again, I'll be in touch and, and look forward to, to hearing more from you in the near future. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for the time. Oh, take care. So friends and colleagues, you just listen to that inspiring uh, moving dialogue with Micheline, which we recorded on August 4th of uh, 2021. I, I don't think there's anything I could add to it. As you can tell, I was left literally speechless by her speaking, uh, which is saying a lot. If you're moved by what you just heard, please feel free to reach out to me, uh, or even better, I invite you to reach out to Micheline and the National Medical Fellowship to Engage your colleagues and the leadership at healthcare institutions, hospitals, medical schools, corporations, companies uh, you're familiar with uh, or work at uh, to listen to Micheline and to engage the NMF. And as I do every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients, I and we so truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society, especially, especially at this particular moment in time when we are in the midst of the second great surge of the COVID pandemic due to the Delta variant. I have to say that I hear about, read about, and see how the doctors, administrators, physicians, assistants, nurses, techs, and Every other healthcare worker shows up each and every day and has been doing this literally now for years, taking care of patients in the midst of a devastating virus, as well as the viral politics that is enveloping this pandemic. You know, people can have their opinions and, and personal views and, and their political disagreements, but when push comes to shove, they come to you when they're not feeling well, when they're ill, when they're sick. Uh, when they need medical care and you treat them. You are all demonstrating the highest form of professionalism and humanity. So thank you, thank you, thank you. 
This is Zev Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well.